Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free of charge. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer can do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, hello, hello. Hi, everybody. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's really good to be with you. How you doing? Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day in the United States of America in the year 2018. It's a weird time to be an American. There's a lot of troubling things going on. Here's what I want to say on July 4th, 2018, uh, as we exist under the rule of Donald Trump. Get active. I want to encourage people to be active citizens. That's really the, the, that's the simple message that I have today. I feel like most of us, uh, I would guess, listening uh, are aware of the dangers presented by Donald Trump, by the, you know, the erosion of our political institutions, the threat to the rule of law, the fact that the election was uh, attacked by a hostile foreign adversary with which the Trump campaign was uh, in communication, shall we say. It's a big, huge scandal, probably the most colossal scandal in the history of this country. It's unfolding as we speak. We don't have the full story yet, but what we do have is deeply troubling. And so all I want to say is this. Be active, be loud, and be energetic. Don't let these fuckers get you down. That's what they want. They want you quiet. They want you apathetic. They want you sitting on your hands. They want you tired. They want you scared. They want you doing all of those things. What they don't want you doing is marching. What they don't want you doing is writing about this, speaking out about it, talking to your friends and family, calling your representatives, writing to your representatives, engaging in acts of uh, civil disobedience, nonviolent protest, all of those things. I encourage that. I encourage you to do things that you probably never thought you would ever do, at least not with the intensity that this moment requires. So don't let the fuckers get you down on this July 4th. Like this is our country. This is where we live. This is where I'm raising my kids. 
This is where you may be raising your kids. This is where we have chosen, or, you know, I guess we didn't choose. We were born here, most of us, but some of us have chosen to live here. And it's on the line. And that's not hyperbole. And perhaps you disagree with me there. Uh, if you do, I wish I could talk to you and we, we could discuss this. I really do feel like it's on the line. I don't think that that's an exaggeration at all. So that's my spiel. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get down off of my soapbox. Happy 4th of July. Yeah, enjoy a barbecue. Watch some fireworks and uh, get energized to uh, to do the work of being a citizen. It's very much needed at this moment in history. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is uh, Bethany C. Morrow. Her debut novel is a work of speculative fiction called Mem. It is available now from the unnamed press. Uh, she was absolutely delightful, like hilarious and challenging and whip-smart and uh, just a great time. A conversation that I, that I think distinguishes itself as uh, being possibly uh, totally unique in the history of this show. That's kind of how I felt when she left. I mean, there's some similarities. I don't want to oversell it. It's not like we talked about stuff that I've never talked about on this show before in some kind of like drastic, dramatic way. But uh, she was great. I really loved meeting her, loved having a conversation with her, hanging out with her a little bit. And I'm happy to share that with you now on Independence Day. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bethany C. Morrow. And her novel, one more time, is called Mem. It's not necessary. Like, we literally just came out of Chicago, which has so many food choices. I don't believe that you couldn't have grabbed something to eat. Um, it takes, what, 30 minutes to, to do the whole boarding process. Could have super-duper quickly eaten. Because that's what he did, by the way, in the seat between me and another person, was literally shove this stuff into his mouth. Oh Every single thing that he purchased. So he unwrapped individually and ate like he had never eaten before. I'm not even... It was so... Uh, it was... It was horrifying. It, I mean, obviously made worse by the fact that in between he would have that whole like cough where it sounds like he had laryngitis or something. And what did he eat? He ate a burger. So wait, he had chest congestion. Yeah. You're on a flight from Chicago to LA. Mm -hmm. He's in the middle seat. Right. And what does he eat? Can we itemize this? So first, I, I'm sorry, I want to set the stage for this a little bit. He had decided as soon as we got on the plane that he was going to order something. And I know this because he took his credit card out and put it on the tray table. Now... It's going to take a while before they're even able to serve food, right? Because you, yeah, we have to be like... You're on the ground. We're on the ground. We're going to be ascending. And then once the seatbelt sign turns off, they still don't immediately do the food thing. Except so they, unless in first class, you get like the chocolate chip cookie. 
We weren't in first class booths. So I know, I know, I, no I know. <laughs> I'm not either, but I'm always like, oh, you get a fucking cookie. <laughs> no, so so he has this thing out, and I was like, oh, or did you need some help with the? Because I thought he was trying to order uh, direct TV or something, and he was like, no. Do you know when they're going to bring the food around? And I was like, oh god, because I already know that means you're you're about to nosh right next to me. So she comes, and he's like, I want such and such, and he order he rattles off like three things, and she was like, I don't have this. I'm like, oh great, so this can take a little bit longer. So she gives him some options. He decides to get the hamburger with no condiments on it and the only thing better i think than him eating a hamburger is knowing that he's going to be eating this dry hamburger when he has this congestion i don't know why that seemed like it was going to make it worse but i feel like it did and then he gets the tapas box which had it was what the hell is a tapas it was box? a mary poppins box of snacks okay it kept going like, but is it like hot food it's not hot food because he was eating these chips like pita chips or something again as though he had never encountered food before which what is it and for people listening if you've never listened to this show before i have spoken at least a dozen times over the years on this program of my uh, of how i abhor the eating of, of food on flights that are five hours long or less. Yeah. Like if you're on some crazy international flight, right. I get it. Fine. You got to eat. You're a human being. You have to have food. Yeah. But, but even then, like, you know, here's a question. Why are people so panicky if they have to like miss a day? Of eating? Yeah. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Calm the fuck down. He was so, this had clearly had been on his mind for a while that he wanted to do this. Oh, just... <laughs> but I feel like when you find out that you're in the middle seat, you should amend your your decisions because we he has he's trying to keep it all contained, all of this accumulating trash from this tapas box, especially. Um, but it's obviously it's like spilling something drops on my foot. I'm not going to say anything. I'm I'm sure you're going to pick that up when you notice that you just dropped trash on my feet. That's fine. But so the woman comes to pick up the trash and he's he warns her, like, I have a lot of stuff. And she's like, OK, like, I still have to get it. So he starts handing her stuff. But the process just kept going. I was like, at, at some point, I really thought I was being punked because I'm like, you're still passing trash over my laptop right now. Um, and then eventually he drops something. And then he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And he goes to reach for it. I'm like, I know you're not I know you're not going to reach into my lap to pick up this trash. He did it. The woman did. Um, so somebody okay. still reached into my lap to pick up trash. And I and then I did turn him and like, how much did you eat? You said something. Yes. I was like, how much did you eat? And then he laughed and he was like, oh, no, I just got like the tapas box and the burger and one other thing. I can't remember. And I was like, yeah. Was it good? Because here's the thing. He ate it so fast. I don't see how he could have even tasted it. Oh my God. It was like watching a duck eat. It was really, and I wasn't even trying to watch. It was just so distracting. I was literally trying to work, but it was so distracting because especially the chips, like he was, I, I swear he was putting like the tips of his fingers into his mouth. Oh my God. What it a was, monster. He's, he's a horrible person. Uh. I don't know his name. I, I know that he lives somewhere in Los Angeles. You are a monster. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Adolf Hitler and then this guy. <laughs> I know. I, I took my face over in front of them. It's okay. I know, but it's like, you know, I, I feel like people like to, to pick on me a little bit because I have these issues with the eating and food and, uh, you know, maybe I'm an outlier, but I'm so glad to find somebody no. else who's bothered by this because there is something intrusive about having to sit in such close quarters with somebody who's eating something, particularly if it's like hot, smelly food yeah. or like loud, crunchy food. Even he on did both. He did both. He did My the burger God. and he did the pita chips. I absolutely know that I have sensory issues 
particularly around eating. There's a name for it. I know there is. And now everybody has, and now, you know, now it's like, I guess, sort of fashionably like, oh yeah, I suffer from this too. I'm like, okay, but I was like called difficult all of my childhood because if you're sitting next to me and you're chewing and I can hear you, if everybody's chewing for some reason, it's fine. But as soon as like, it's just one singular chewer, I will throat chop you. Like, stop imagine if you and i were on a flight together <laughs> i'm in the aisle seat you're you're in the aisle seat i'm in the window seat and this dude's in the no. middle he wouldn't throw chops he would be throw chops <laughs> just back to <laughs> they would be unloading his body <laughs> i was so upset at him and every time i said something he totally took it as like i was being polite or something and like giggled yeah. at me or something and i was like dude i want to physically harm you yeah no like- i would i would have like leaned forward and just been like <laughs> Look into I, my eyes. You would have just looked at me you're in the right. eye. We would have Im- immediately known without a word. You will die tonight. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not making it home. Stop eating. God, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. I could talk an entire hour about that. I, you know, it's just it's something that has uh, been. I'm with really me. glad to talk about it though, because I feel like if I had it, it was just going to wreak havoc on my psyche throughout this entire visit. So. Thank you for this very like cathartic. No, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm here for you on this journey. I get it, and I feel like. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of us out there and I feel like too, like it's a matter of consideration, being mm-hmm. considerate to your fellow man, your right. fellow traveler. Like how might this impact since I'm sharing such a small yeah. space? Like, why would you act like this does not have some sort of impact right. or that everyone's going to be cool with it? Like it just seems. And if you were dying of hunger, genuinely, cause I have some health issues that mean that I, I really, I, but that's why I made sure to eat before I got on the plane. Cause right. I like, have to you're eat. hypoglycemic? Or no, I have like a sickle trait disorder. So I, I need to, I need some meat protein, particularly when I'm changing altitudes, I need to drink water pretty constantly and all that kind of stuff. And I do always think about like, is this going to bother people? Is this person a vegetarian? Is this going to offend anybody? If you absolutely were dying, could you have eaten one of those things? I feel like that was an option. Yeah. Just eat the burger. Right. Did you need all of the things that he got? Like, when I tell you that he had a mountain of trash on his little... It was completely unnecessary. Well, it's like, yeah, the, eating is an emotional experience for a lot of people. Like, I mean, it's emotional for everybody to a degree. But that strikes me as maybe like excessive. Like, he just needed that food. He just needed it. I think needed he needed soothe. the experience. I don't know if... I don't know. I don't know if it was like a show of status or something like, I'm going to order food as soon as I get on this plane. But you know what it could be too? He could be a nervous flyer. Some people, they get anxious. They're going to be on a plane and they're like, you know what? I'm going to self-soothe with the the plane burger. That's just like opposite of me. I I absolutely hate flying, but my, like it will make me anxious if I think about it too much. So I can't imagine eating to undo that feeling i feel like, like it would make me can't you just nauseous. take a xanax like everybody else just knock yourself out right? get some alcohol because <laughs> on, on, on the flight right before that as soon as the the woman came by uh the chick next to me was like i'll have a bloody mary like i wasn't even about to check the time it was like 12 30 i don't want this is the thing i mean i think i've had a i mean maybe when i was like in my early 20s i got like like after i turned 21 i was like i'm gonna get a, a beer on the plane I don't do that. Never. I don't want an alcohol. I don't want anything on the plane except for the flight to be over Exactly. With. It's not necessary. Just I feel like water, people make it more than it needs to be. Maybe, We're just trying to get from point A to point B. What about uh, what about raw almonds? Like a small bag of like raw almonds or the pretzels that come with like... That's acceptable. The, the pretzels are fine because everybody is receiving them. If you choose not to eat them and you have to sit there and listen to everybody else crunch, that's your own fault. Right. You had the option to eat the pretzels. I feel similarly. It does not take a very long time to eat them. They do not give you much. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There's like seven pretzels. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Get it in, get it out. You had a little, that was a little distraction. That was nice. Yeah. Um, you wasted about seven minutes. 
now do something else. So I'm t- I've been trying to, cause like in addition to the volume of, of food, like the quantity, uh, and then the kind of food that one might choose to eat on a plane, but then, uh, to kind of like diverge a little bit from plane eating, I've been uh, thinking about, uh, mindful eating cause mm-hmm. I'm like a meditator and sort of mm-hmm. Buddhist. And there's this like school of thought that like, you're supposed to really like uh, be aware of every single bite of food and you're supposed to savor every single bite of food. And like you were, like you were talking about the guy eating like a duck. Oh my gosh. Like you would have loved this guy. We purport to, uh, love food and like to, you know, I'm a foodie and I love food and all this stuff. But then we eat like Vikings. We don't even chew it. You know what I'm saying? And so the thing is, I'm not a, I'm absolutely not a foodie and I absolutely do not feel like I have any emotional connection with food. And I literally can forget to eat for full days if somebody doesn't watch me. And that is why I'm so confused by people being so extra about food. What is food? It's energy. It's, it's, it's fuel. I mean, unless I just roast it. Like if I'm, if I just barbecued, that's the most excited that you will see me about food. And also, okay, I just landed in California. Obviously somebody needs to take me to get some Mexican food. Like that's, I'm excited about because I don't know if you have attempted or would be silly enough to attempt to get Mexican food in the Northeast. Don't do it. Um, it's a horrific experience that will bring you to tears, <laughs> which again would be your own fault. This entire episode is just about Bethany's food related traumas. <laughs> <laughs> basically so um so that's i get excited about i think nostalgic food can be nostalgic for me like um fruit isn't done right outside of california california is so, great on fruit yeah produce, produce right? i mean produce that i can and being able to buy like in sacramento we would just you know you don't buy strawberries and cherries at the grocery store you just go to that place off the side of the road and you just buy them and they're warm and they're wonderful um, and after eating so much fruit in the Northeast, that's just old an abortion in your mouth. Like it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so upsetting. It, and it's, you, you can't not buy it because you're from California and you know what fruit looks like. And that looks like fruit. So I'm going to try it just this time. Like this is last time. It's an abusive relationship. Right. Right, dude. <laughs> just this last time I'm going to try to get these cherries, especially because now they're like, oh, we have California cherries. Uh-huh. I won't even tell you why that process makes no sense, but I'll get them. And it's literally like eating a warhead. <laughs> like so I will get excited and nostalgic about food that will taste the way I feel it's supposed to taste. Right. So when I come back, I do, I probably eat way more in California than I, than I eat back home because it's right. I sometimes wonder if people would be like disturbed by how simple I am as an eater. Like I'll I'm eat, extremely simple. Like, like just steamed kale a bowl of brown rice. I'm very healthy also. You lost me at kale. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I can feel that this is where our paths diverge. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. Oh, yeah. no. And I'm like, I'm, and I'm very, like, very... I'm actually morally opposed to vegetarians. You are? I am, absolutely. You don't, you can't stand us. I cannot. There's I can't a handle line. it. A chill has just fallen over the room. I have friends who are like, oh my gosh, I, I think I haven't had meat. And they're not vegetarians. They'll just be like, I, I don't think that I've cooked meat in like the last two weeks. And I will... Just slap them just as hard as I can. Just as hard as I can. Yeah. What are you thinking? But again, it's it's because um 
well, A, because it tastes delicious, but B, because I literally, I think when people don't take into account any sort of like medical issues that would be exacerbated by trying not to eat meat. So everybody gets very morally, you know, superior by saying like, oh, I don't eat meat. I'm like, okay, you probably don't have red blood cell destruction. And so you probably don't care about something that might help you um, produce red blood cells at a slightly faster pace. Um, Meat protein helps. So I'm like, no, I, I like, I literally do need to to eat um, meat, but I also, it's not a meal. If you serve me food and there's no meat anywhere, I'm like, so I'm going to have to go eat after this. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. And like, I'm not, my grandfather was a butcher. I come from like meat eaters, meat makers. What would he think of you now? He's a sh- I'm a disgrace. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but uh, I feel like I don't really need to mix it up food wise. Like mm-hmm. I know what I like. Yeah. I know what's what good. And I know it's good for me. Right. Just like you got to eat what makes yeah. you feel good. And if you have a medical need, of course, you know, like honor that. I'm going to eat that meat. Um, but I don't need like elaborate dishes right. and I don't have time. And then the other thing too, is like people who have time mm-hmm. to cook because mm-hmm. cooking is a pain in the ass. Yeah. I know you can get good at it and you can come up with like your five or 10, like go-to recipes. And maybe you do the prep on Sundays. You know, like I've heard all these different theories, but the, the bottom line is that if you have time to cook mm-hmm. elaborate meals on a regular basis, right. like you've got a good life. That's a lot of free time. You know what? I feel like nobody has that kind of free time. So I just want to know what you're sacrificing. Right. In order, because that's, that's an enjoyment experience also for a lot of people. My sister and I were literally just talking about this. So my sister who lives in Los Angeles, she makes a type of potato salad that for some reason in her memory is like my potato salad. Like she makes it for me. This couldn't be further from the truth. Um, <laughs> potato salad is basically supposed to be a palate cleanser, okay, to make way for more ribs. So <laughs> she, like I just last week, I mean, I'm I'm in like the area that I'm in, in in upstate New York is like as soon as the sun comes out, I'm going to grill because you do not know how long that's going to last. So you got to take advantage. You've got to take advantage immediately. So I just grill and I made, you know, I had my husband make some potato salad and it's just white potatoes, mayonnaise, mustard, eggs, and, and celery. That's potato salad. That's potato salad. I feel like I need to underline that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so my sister, who is a foodie, who is a designer, who is a, you know, she's, she's all of these creative and artistic things. Um, and I'm basically like... A peasant compared to her. So she makes this red potato salad with dill and, um, and it's like, oh, dill. It, it's just, oh, dill. Oh, with dill. <laughs> and I'm like, if you don't get this out of my face. <laughs> and then I'm like, so why is some of the skin left on? Oh, just because. So it's just like a pop of color. And I'm uh-huh. like, I'm not, I'm not eating that just from a moral position. Right. I'm not eating this. Yeah. Go get me some plain potatoes. <laughs> if it's not fluorescent yellow, I don't want to fucking see it. <laughs> get it out of my face. And it has to mush. Like when you stir it, it has to like, you know, you have to see the texture in, you know, and these are, these red potatoes, they don't mush. They don't. So they're just like cubes of potato with like a little fleck of red skin on them. And then the dill. And, and then, then the, the dill. dill. Yeah. And then like, I can't, that's not potato salad. That's I don't know what that is, but that's not potato salad. <laughs> that's art is what it is. I'm so, it's, <laughs> it's upsetting. It's absolutely upsetting to me, but that's like, that's her kind of cooking. Um, so like last night when, when I flew in and she's a feeder too, she like, she's going to feed you. Like she, that's, uh-huh. that's her big thing. So I was, I like that by the way, I do love Especially that. Especially when somebody comes, like, I wish I was better at this. Like yeah. people come to your house yeah. to see you. I would love to be like, be able to like make an, a great meal. Like I can, but like, 
do we need to do that? It's a pain in the ass. You're here to see me, right? right? Like, come on. No, but so I came to her house and I was, I was thinking, because again, I'm flying to California, so I'm thinking carnitas. That's the first thing that needs to happen. Let's just go to a taco stand. I just, let's just do that. And she was like, oh, okay, no, we can totally do that. I just, I just have some, I just have some like Kalamato, uh, you know, olives, and then I just have some peppers, and then there's probably just like some heirloom tomatoes in there, and like a roast chicken, and just I just have a couple, and then there's probably some uh, tupuli, and just a little bit. I just have like a little garlic paste, and so, and then I'll just put some pita on. I'm like, oh just let, let her do it. You gotta I'm let like, her have her night. Oh my gosh! So we stayed. It, it was obviously it was delicious. I mean, I didn't eat the pita and all that kind of stuff, but like I needed the chicken, so I ate the chicken. You ate the entire chicken. I, <laughs> No, I didn't eat, eat all of the chicken because I also do not honestly eat that much, but I did eat the chicken. I love that. I'm from California. Okay. So that setup, that, that Mediterranean like setup is very, and it feels lower key than it actually is because when you have to get all of these, you have 17 things you have to get out of the, the fridge to make this meal happen. Yeah. But once it's on your plate, like it feels like it's just so light and like breezy and yeah. it's just like little, it's just olives and tomatoes. <laughs> toothpick and, and just and get olive. your toothpick and get your little cube cheese and stuff. And it feels like it's like super low maintenance. It is not. Yeah. Obviously. Are you but... drinking wine? Is that like, cause that's very California too. Are you I pairing this? I'm, I'm really awful. I need water. Hi, I just need my ice water. Um, she didn't have any ice. What the fuck? Exactly. Like, who are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I ended up having, what was it? She had like some... I feel like she would have, I feel like a foodie would have one of those ice trays that makes like the big like cubes of ice. I will tell you like that she apologized square. no less than six times in like a five minute span because she was like, I, I and, and I would have completely forgotten about it. I'm like sitting down at the table at this point. She's like, I'm so sorry. I don't have ice. I don't even... Oh, I feel so horrible. I don't have any ice for you. And I'm like, I'm, I'm clearly over it. I'm trying to eat. <laughs> like, Just leave me alone with my chicken. <laughs> leave me in the chicken alone, please. By the way, I don't want to hear you chew, so I'm going to eat in the next room. Oh, no. Nobody sat down with me. This is, this is the great thing about family. Nobody sat down at the table with me. Just I let me I can count eat. on one hand how many times I think I've sat down with my entire family for a meal. Why would you do meal. that? I don't know. Do That's you guys, what I, listen, unless you're trying to prove to people that you love them, which if you have to prove it, like... You've already done something wrong. <laughs> we don't have to all eat together. I do not want to think poorly of my 13-year-old son. I know he didn't do anything wrong. I know that he just wants to sit near his mom, but I swear to <laughs> You can swear. You can swear, please. <sighs> just Lusa. I just he he has a particular the sad thing is like when your child is first born, it's so freaking cute. The way babies eat is so freaking cute. Yeah, I don't notice it as much in my kids, at least oh my not gosh. yet. I just absolutely loved it. Up until he was maybe two, two and a half, it was so freaking adorable. Because it's like they're learning to masticate. Like, he does not know what he's doing. It's absolutely adorable. And then somebody flitch, flips a switch, and you're, like, looking at your three-year-old who's eating an apple like he's an effing goat. And you're like, <laughs> I will end you. <laughs> I created you. And I was, I can yes. What is it? It's a black mom saying, I brought you into this world and I will take you out. Like, get away from me. And he associates eating with being near me. So I won't even be eating. He'll just go get food and come sit next to me. And now all I just do is like turn my head slowly and stare at him. And then he just walks. He just away. walks away. That's the way. You've done a good job yeah, as a mom. Exactly. Honestly, like there's very few things that I, I feel strongly about it in terms of teaching my kids but one of them is table manners yeah i think like basic manners yeah. like in an, under that umbrella is right. table manners like if you have bad table manners yeah someone wrong yeah absolutely yeah. you're yeah. an animal like the guy who was sitting next to me on the plane <laughs> so okay so you're from california yeah you were born in sacramento right T tell me about your childhood 
Like, was it very, like, uh, that was like a, that, I don't know if you feel like that transition was like super normal, but you're like, <laughs> tell me about your childhood. I always ask people about where they're from. Um, okay. So I don't, what do you want to know about my childhood? I don't understand. I don't know. What was it like a Joan Didion? Um, what was that movie with Greta Gerwig in it? You know, wasn't that a Sacramento, you know? Movie? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, here, I haven't seen the movie. But of course, I know about the movie, and I know about the locations where it was shot. And the very next time I go to Sacramento, I will talk to somebody about that movie. We get so few things, yeah. So you have to you have to just hold on for dear life. Um, and there were only like two schools that she could have possibly had that at, and one of them, Loretto, I knew had closed down years ago. So, um, in terms of the Catholic school that the main character goes to, I guess again, I have not seen the movie, but I will because it's set in Sacramento. Um, so I don't know what that was like, but I. Let's see. I grew up with four of my siblings um, at the house with me. We were in the same little back-to-back group. And so a pretty large family, you know, seven people in the house. And um, it's so really five strange. kids? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. No. So that seemed completely normal to me at the time. Of course, it was wonderful. You have enough people to do a play. You have enough people. This is going to tell you exactly who I am as an adult. You have enough people to do a play. You have enough people for somebody to be a cameraman when you want to make music videos and for two people to be actually in it and for somebody to be the designer. So if you have, it's like the perfect amount of, of kids. Got like somebody to hold the boom mic. Absolutely. And, yeah. It's wonderful. Um, when we did radio shows, it was, it was great. You have a producer, you've got, it was wonderful. So I, let's see, I went to, I, I went to university in Santa Cruz. Um, Wait, you went to UC Santa Cruz? Yeah. I went to UC Santa Cruz, Porter for life. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, well, the college is... What? So what, you is, don't, you what does don't Porter know mean? Any, you don't know anything about UC Santa Cruz? Because you, you acted like you knew. No, I just... I, what I know about it is that there are like no grades. They just give you like... Teachers just See, give you like evaluations. See, that's true. Like, ugh, you people. Okay, so <laughs> UC Santa Cruz is like broken up into, into like colleges, little residential colleges or whatever. So like other UCs, my sister went to UC Santa Barbara and like it's every, you know, they just have these residential halls that have no, you have no connection to like the people. There's no reason why you're all together. And then you all walk to these different buildings that have your classes in it. So UC Santa Cruz is totally different because it's like there's uh, separate colleges and they tend to house like a department. So Porter is the theater and film, you know, performing arts type of uh, college. And then across from it is like like college eight i don't know what they do except look like they live in the suburbs because they're all designed differently like the, each of the colleges the little communities look different it's a beautiful place it's absolutely cruise. gorgeous it's in a redwood forest so God. like and, and then you're overlooking the ocean so and you can you know like when the whales um breach well no when they well they, yes they do that of course but i mean when they ugh, there's a particular part of the year where they're um what is the word mating no, what? <laughs> I don't know. What else do they Whatever. do? Whatever. When they, they move from they one mate. place, when they move from one place to the other, migrate. Going, yes, when they're migrating. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's just constantly dolphins. Find a surfer, you will find the dolphins. The dolphins are like very. They think they're surfers. It's adorable. So you surf? It's beautiful. Absolutely not. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, even in swimming pools, that I will be eaten by a shark. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> It's, I don't know. It's going to come out of the filter. I'm very, I have a huge fear of that. I do not understand. And of course, like this, there's great whites like in that area Oh yeah, and that's where they feed and stuff. So I'm like, you guys can be out there if you want and I'll watch you from here and the dolphins. And then once the dolphins like disappear, then it's like, it's time to go home. Do you, would um, you swim in the ocean? Yeah, but I hate it. With trepidation. <laughs> yes. With you're looking, abs- you're looking every which way. Absolutely. I'm like almost making myself drown because I'm suddenly will get in my mind 
that I suddenly have this, I know how to sense sharks. Yeah. I'll just suddenly feel that I have that ability. It's such a shitty way to die. <laughs> of all way, to be a meal. I always say, I don't want to be a meal. I can't do it. I cannot do it. Speaking and then, of eating. Oh my gosh. And then this girl, Bethany, the surf girl, who had her arm, and we have the same name. I don't know if you know. Oh, the girl in Hawaii. Yes. She got her arm, it was like a hammerhead shark or something, yes. bit her arm and off. And her name was Bethany. Right. So you can see why I would be concerned. It's they, too close to home. It's too close to home. It hit very close to home. I was I was completely traumatized. Um, I think I went to Maui like shortly after that, and one of the beaches was actually closed because of a quote-unquote disturbance that turned out to have to do with the shark. And I was like, when will you people learn? I feel like I'm the scientist in every... Like about to be apocalypse movie. <laughs> who's trying to warn people and nobody will listen? Is that like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic yeah, Park? Uh, basically, yeah. yeah. I was thinking exactly of Jeff Goldblum. Actually, we're we're pretty, pretty much the same person. So, just I just want to put this warning out there. If you're listening to this, you're gonna be eaten by a shark. <laughs> just remember that I warned you. Don't listen to the statistics. <laughs> it's a certainty. It's a, it is absolutely a certainty. People are like, oh, you're you're more likely to like be in a car crash. Well, duh, because you're more often in a car. As soon as you get in the ocean. You're going to be eaten by a shark. Yeah. Just remember that Bethany Simaro told you that. Yeah. I've, I've had, I've had experiences, uh, where I was in this, I was in Australia and there's this Island off the coast of Australia that I was on where like the, the waters you're like pretty much not allowed to go in. Mm -hmm. You can't even step into it. But I was like in college, I was all fucked up with my friends. We were like swimming. We like looked out. We're like, we don't see any sharks. Like, I don't know I was... if you guys know this listening to this. He is a Caucasian male. <laughs> I just want to put, just to explain this story. Go ahead. There's nothing else you need to There's, know. That's all you need to know. That's it. We can actually just end this episode right here. <laughs> yeah. Nice talking to you, everybody. <laughs> Bethany, it's great to meet you. <laughs> anyway, uh, I went to this island twice. The first time was under the influence and like walking into the water and being in like up to my neck, you know, like treading water. And then the second time I went, that particular section of the coast was like like visibly loaded with giant like 12 foot sharks and i was like what were we th- like we were not thinking properly i want to break the story down a little bit for you so you said that you were aware of this stretch of beach right that but was we, we were aware when you go onto the island they're like by the way like don't even go in so you last warned. week a young girl like mm-hmm. a like eight-year-old girl was like in up to her knees just like waiting like a shark came in and like bit off like the lower half of her leg. And so you're like, you know what we should do? <laughs> we should get inebriated. We should go deep into the water. I mean... We were young and felt like we were immortal. Absolutely not. I never felt like I was immortal. So don't try no. to use, don't ever try to use that take as an explanation. Take a powerful dose of LSD off the coast of Australia. Listen, but before you take the LSD, you have to already be like, you know what I'm, I'm cool with? I'm cool with taking LSD and then continuing my day and doing something that is not even potentially dangerous, but is like proven dangerous. No, it was reckless. Absolutely not. It was we a reckless time. Friends. I regret. I mean, I looking back, I'm like, that was, that was completely. We would idiotic. never have been friends. <laughs> Well, uh, okay. So were you, you say you're sort of Jeff Goldblum, uh, you have written speculative fiction that I assume Jeff Goldblum will star in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like sciencey. Like, were you a sciencey kid? Um, I mean, in the way that all kids are, I think that, I think all kids start out that way. And then somebody tells them that they're not smart enough to do science or, or it's just honestly kind of, you get buried in the minutia of learning science and that can for some kids can sap the energy um i was always a writer i was always a performer so i loved science but i wasn't like in love with science right right? so i i I sucked at chemistry um i think 
I mean, okay, so I went to an IB high school in, in what Sacramento. Is, what does that mean? International Baccalaureate. And what does that mean? It's a, you're going to make me like define it. Will you speak French? Is that what it is? Well, no, well, the, I did, I, I did study French there, but International Baccalaureate is an actual program, like an inquiry based, um, type of education that sort of is, um, well, what my son did in, in Montreal, cause he went to an IB school there. It was much more interdisciplinary than I remember mine being, but, um, but instead of like learning a little bit about a lot of different things, which that's my like kind of burn on AP, um, IB was really about the way we process information and, and the way to extract information and draw conclusions and all that sort of thing. So I felt like it, it really honed critical thinking itself and um no matter what the subject um and of course writing skills and and reading and all that kind of stuff was like very very important so with science i did sl which is subsid level i did i did hl for history and english and all of the things that you would assume a writer would what's hl Um, hl is the higher level so higher level okay you have to have a certain number of higher level a certain number of sl and uh sl is what my i did my science um because i just wasn't about it you knew um, your strengths well and it's like i'm not i'm not horribly interested past a certain point so we had an ib class that was um basically like marine biology i don't remember what it was actually called but we ended up taking a week where you go and stay in like bodega bay and you and it's like i think it was uc davis's like research lab facility or whatever and we stayed there and you know you go to all the different types of biomes sandy beach and the mus- um muscle point and Oh, what were a couple of the other ones? I Muscle remember. Point? Yeah, it's basically like a cliff, the type of beach where it was. it's more like a cliff, and so all of the muscles have attached to this, uh, to the, so to not the rock. Like, and not like weightlifters, more like the actual yeah. like sea creatures. So I said marines, so I felt like you would know, but <laughs> clearly I need to be a little more specific. It just they immediately, immediately triggered like thoughts of like Muscle Beach in Venice or whatever. Yeah, not yeah. that at all. So, and then we would do like meter square quadrats where you would like, you would build this little frame, and then you have to basically study and also draft and and draw everything that's in there and then we would have time in the actual lab and so i mean it was pretty intense and i really really enjoyed it but it was it was still the subsid version of science and that's what i did but it informed later creative work i mean like it gave you some sort of foundation um i don't feel like that sort of thing did i think more my stuff is always more social science and my my love of sociology and sort of uh, clinical psychology and forensic psychology and stuff like that um i would say more so than natural science or anything and did you study that in like psychology sociology was was my major at uc santa cruz Ah, um and then i started grad school in great britain um in clinical psychological research and then I was supposed to go to York and uh, be in the forensic psychology program. And what is forensic psychology? Um, so forensic psychology deals more with like um, criminology and deviance and all that kind of stuff. And you would, you know, you, there's always a forensic psychologist on like Law and Order. Or something. Right, right. So you're dealing with people typically who've uh, broken the law or trying to profile somebody who's done that or whatever. So there's a lot of case study, case studying and that sort of thing. Um, creating interests that, you know, I can't really share with many people because they're like, why are you doing this? Um, I would say that sort of thing. And I don't know if that so much informs it so much as that's just the type of person that I am. That's what I'm paying attention to when I'm watching people or when I'm, um, just the way that I break down a scenario or a situation. Um, I think a lot of people like the really pop psychology explanations for things, the, the, the most 
visible and easiest and almost like most remedial explanation for human behavior, um, which doesn't make sense to me because humans do not exist in a vacuum. And um, so sociology to me is is a little more important, at least foundationally, like as an entry point um, to, to understand somebody's behavior than psychology on its own. How did we get here from sharks? I have no idea. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad we did. And, you know, because it gets us to your book and to writing. And I'm curious to know, first of all, you went from UC Santa Cruz to Great Britain. Right. How did that transition happen? Like what brought you? I to... applied to use to, uh, to the University of Wales in Bangor. You wanted to I get got out. accepted. And uh, I like I knew I was going to be leaving the country. When I was at UC Santa Cruz, don't tell anyone this. Okay, this is a secret. Yeah. Um, so when I was at UC Santa Cruz, I um, actually was going to transfer to Concordia or McGill in, in Montreal at that time because I just, I always, I don't know, I don't like being, this is going to sound so different than what I mean. I don't like being native so much. So I was very tired of California. I had sort of needed to stay in California because of some health stuff that happened at the end of high school. Um, but I was like, I, I feel like I'm fine now and I need to, I just want was to Was it related to the sickle? Yeah, like, the sickle trait disorder. Thing. So that, that all happened senior year of high school, that all presented. Um, and so I was meaning to, to transfer. And then I had written a short story that I was like, you know what, actually, I, I think I want to um, sort of transpose this into a screenplay. But I would only want to do that if I'm actually going to be able to make this film at UC Santa Cruz. Because I was a social major, but I did pretty much everything in film and theater still. Um, and so I got with an advisor and they were like, yeah, you can make the film here and we'll give you university credit for it. And, and so I ended up staying at UC Santa Cruz, which I'm very, very happy about um, because I, because they would let me do whatever I wanted. Right, and they'd give, give you me an evaluation at the end. Shut up. That is not true. <laughs> that is not I think true. it sounds great. Okay. You get letter grades and oh. narrative evaluations, unless it's a pass fail class, which I don't think can be like for your major. I don't remember exactly, but like, especially for social, that was not an option. You could not do pass fail for sociology. You had to have uh, letter grades, um, but you, you did still get narrative evaluations, which I think are way more helpful and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like I really loved that. I always read my narrative evaluations. Um, yeah. So I went from there to banger and you were all, but you were like, cause you live in Montreal now. I live near Montreal, now. near Montreal. Okay, I but, lived in Montreal for like six to seven years and now I live in the area, but you were thinking about that part of the world. While you were at UC Santa well, Cruz? Well, yeah, because it, it, at Mariloma, and I was in the French department or whatever, and, or that was the language that I did in, in high school, um, all of our exchange students were from Montreal. Oh, so that's the connection. Yeah, so I was like, okay, well, at least that's that's still on the same continent. So if I had to still be on the continent, then I would just maybe go to Montreal. Um, you speak French? Are you going to ask me to say anything in French? I mean, I, je parle un petit peu. No. No? No, You're not going to say anything. I don't speak any French. <laughs> um, <laughs> you speak some French. Come on. I know. Right. I don't. Um, I don't so, believe you. <laughs> you shouldn't, because I just said, <laughs> no, no, I just don't uh, speak you don't do it publicly. French on demand. I get it. And I also won't talk about the difference between French and Quebecois French. No shade. Um, and how it ruined my French. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so then I, I went, I, I knew that I wanted to go there, but I ended up staying at UC Santa Cruz because they let me make a film, which was awesome. And then I was married like between 
I think I got married between sophomore and junior year. Of, of college? Right, yes. Wow, that's young. I did. I was 20. And, um, and then when I graduated, I had just had... Well, I graduated a bit early. So when I walked at graduation, I was eight months pregnant. I had not been that fully pregnant in school because I had already left. I was just coming back for graduation. And... Um, Went into contractions at graduation. Shout out to Porter for being at the top of the hill in direct sunlight and not having any shade. Um, And me for still wearing the gown and sitting there for three hours. Um, So that was awesome. But so where was I going with that? So then with with my infant baby and my husband, we moved to Wales um, for me to start grad school and for him to start university there. And... I realized really quickly, actually, there was a there was a contest in Harper's Bazaar in the UK, Harper's um, Bazaar that was for, I don't know, to write something like a, a very short, like one act screenplay, I think about just on the theme Paris Noir. And I wrote something for it. My sister brought it to me and I wrote something for it. And you I won. had been writing. No, I did not win. Oh. Um, I... I feel like you would have heard something from that if I had. No, I I realized that I had always been writing and I, you know, had novels at that point already. And I just felt like... You're a precocious young person. You're not that old and you've already already written novels. You've already had a kid. Yeah, I'm a 13 year old. I'm 35. God. Which is great because people are always like, did you get to finish high school? And I'm like, (laughs) well, since I had him after university, yes. Um yeah, no, I've I I've thrown away all of those novels, um, all of the novels that I wrote pretty much before 2010, um, because they were very much just for Bethany, in and not in like a good way of like, oh, I knew at the time they were just for me, but just in the way that it, when you read them, you'd be like, you didn't have any idea of like industry or market or or just anybody else's opinion or desires or interests or anything. They were just not. It was like keeping a journal, and that's really not how you should right if you want to share this with other people honestly um and there wasn't a lot of revision happening so you can just imagine um i have it in my will that these are to be burned with me unopened no one is to ever see <laughs> why these. don't you just burn them now um i am only a hoarder when it comes to book related stuff all oh, right we were talking i think before we came on about mm, how i've given you know, away some books if and you want to get into that i mean if you want the mob at your doorstep <laughs> He throws I, books away, you guys. I'm just going to throw that out I there. I get so many books sent to me. I cannot house them all. Oh, my gosh. That to- oh, you didn't books. say that. That makes sense. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. You're an awful person. <laughs> you are going to hell. I'm sorry to be judgmental, but you, you heard are. it here first, ladies and gentlemen. I've been, I've been condemned. It's going to happen. Yeah. Whoever's listening to this is going to be eaten by a shark. <laughs> He's going to hell. That's how this works. He's the arbiter of our fates. I am. I'm a writer. I can uh, do it. So, okay. So you... Did you see that movie Stranger Than Fiction? Yeah. yeah. Who, who's that? Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell and like Maggie Gyllenhaal. I actually really like that I movie. I love that movie. I felt like it was in... Who's so the who was the other? It was Maggie Gyllenhaal. It and, was um, the queen. Her What's her name? Kate Blanchett? No, Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. That's yes. right. I like that she movie. Was wonderful. Oh, and Queen Latifah was in it as a, as a writing assistant that I still... This mythical creature that I've never heard of or heard tell of or heard of anyone who had one. Not that maybe they would tell anybody, but I, I remember watching the movie and that was the part that I was like, wait, what? An assistant to who a writer. Who is she? What is she supposed Roxanne to Roxanne Gay has a writing assistant. She has an assistant. That's the only person yeah, I can think of. Yeah, but doesn't she have a research assistant? Yeah, like she something like she that. She doesn't have like a, somebody who helps her write. Oh, right. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, was, no. Yeah. 
because she was like behind deadline or something. So the publisher sent her this person to follow her. Okay, whatever. Anytime you watch like movies or TV shows about writing or publishing or anything, you're like, that's it. You know, here's, here's what, now you're making me think it sounds, I think it would actually be nice to have like a gifted young writing assistant who I could like verbalize like my ideas to, and then they would take it and like do the first draft and then I could take it for the rest. Like they have to do. So they wrote it. So they wrote it. So anyway, <laughs> here's why that does not work. That's called a ghostwriter, and it? they still should get paid a certain amount. Um, yeah, sure. I, I would compensate. Yeah. And then also five or 10 years later, they should be like, I wrote that book. <laughs> no, like it doesn't make any sense to me. And if you have a writing assistant and you want to explain to me why this actually makes sense, please feel free uh, to contact me and explain this to me. But it seems absolutely ridiculous. Um, anybody who had that kind of time and that kind of energy and that kind of creativity and that kind of, you know, everything that it takes to literally write and finish and complete and plot and all that stuff, a book, they don't have their own ambitions to be a writer. Like, what are they doing helping you? Hey, listen, some people, some people are midwives. They, you know, they're there to, to, they're there to be of service. I don't even buy that even a little bit. Like that makes no sense to me. So when you talk about, like, I heard you mention like the early efforts that you made at writing like novels and they weren't efforts. I wrote the books. You wrote the books. They're just not for public consumption. Not for public <laughs> consumption. But you were saying that like, I, I did it with no awareness of market or audience. Right. Uh, and so when you wrote Mem. Are you like, what, what, like how much explicit thinking did you do about like, well, what sells in publishing? No, it's not that sort of thing. It's more when you're not thinking of this as an industry or, and I think it's actually just being green period because it kind of works in any industry. Um, when you honestly think that the words that you first write down we're inspired by a burning bush and can do no wrong and are meant to be there because they came out of you. That's what I mean. I don't mean like writing to trend or finding out trends or anything like that, but just recognizing how big being a writer is being a rewriter. Um, and so when you don't know that about the industry, you have this idea that these people wrote this book and this is how it came out. And if you watch movies about writers, I know. that's what you see. It's like somebody sits down at a typewriter and they type it all out at the night before. And then their <laughs> editor comes and starts reading it and their editor like sheds a tear and they're like, Oh my God, this is a genius. And then it goes to press. And that's how writing works. Like that's, Garbage. Like, that's absolute freaking nonsense. It's and you would be horribly humiliated if anybody actually took that stuff and published it. Because right now you think it's great. You're going to come to your senses in a very short measure. And you're going to read this and be like, what the hell was I thinking? This is so overblown. Or this is so melodramatic. Or this is so overwritten. Or this makes no sense. Or the plot, this whole is like a freaking you know, Montreal pothole. Like, it makes no sense to think of it that way. So that's what I mean in terms of my writing before 2010 was basically like, as it comes out, it was meant to come out. <laughs> like, no, that's trash. From my pen. <laughs> From God's mouth to my pen to the world. No. It's... I guess, I mean, there are these stories, most of which are apocryphal about these, you know, kind of like almost divine bursts of inspiration. And But like, usually if a book does shoot out of somebody really fast. Yeah. Like they've been working for years and years and years. Well, and here's the thing. Not everybody, the, the first draft doesn't always happen on the page. So something that I know about myself is that before I ever come, I don't come to a blank page. When people talk about writer's block and all that kind of stuff, I don't know that I believe in that, especially as somebody who's trying to get paid for writing. You just sit down and write, sweetie. Like it might not be what you end up 
needing. It might not be what you end up selling. It might be in a completely different product. Uh, but just sit down and write. There's Do no the work. block. There's no block. It's work. Um, but I don't come to a blank page. Um, I There are a number of things I have before I ever set out to write it. And and even when I tell people like what my process was for writing Mem, it's not that I went back a hundred times and made any sort of changes. I do what I call rolling edits anyway, because I always read before I start writing when I come to the next, you know. How much um, do you, re- you read your own work? I read it. I reread whatever I've maybe it depends on, on where I leave it. So if, if I wrote this sort of like a, I thought of these chapters as sort of vignettes because they all have sort of a story, their own story or their own historical, uh, stimuli, like in, the, in each chapter. So if I wrote a vignette yesterday and I ended it and I wrote all the way to the end, I would probably reread. I might skim the beginning and I would definitely read very closely, like the last couple of pages. Number one to, uh, reacquaint myself with the voice. Yeah. Um, and, and just to see the flow that, you know, what is the, I think a lot of time, like what is the natural progression for this person, the person that I'm writing. So I'm not thinking what's the natural progression for the market or for the audience or what are people going to expect because who cares? But in terms of like for this person, I am trying to write a story true to this character. This character shouldn't be able to exist in any world, but this one. And therefore she should be absolutely a product of this world that I've created. So I need to think about what would her natural response be? Where would this naturally lead her? What kind of organically happens? And of course, you know, then you have things that happen to them that they wouldn't have liked or wouldn't have planned for. But it, it, I, I reacquaint myself with wherever I was in that process before I start writing. But before I start, the first thing that I ever write down, um, I, I have a song usually or a couple of songs or a playlist that really um, captures the tone and the mood I know I want to be, the, I want the words to be in. So I'll just kind of have that on a loop while what I'm... Was your, what was your playlist? What was your song for for, for this one, it was probably a very short... It's horrible because they say music in Karina Karina is by Thomas Newman. I'm pretty sure it's not. I think there's like... I think there was a secondary person who did most of it, but there's a particular theme in there called home movies, actually, that is very obviously Thomas Newman. And it really, really, really emotionally... Wait, Karina Karina is a movie? Yes. Why do I not know that? What what is it? Refresh my memory. Ray Liotta? Karina Karina? Whoopi Goldberg? Okay. <laughs> what is happening here? We were like really on the same again, page at gentlemen. the beginning and we've drifted so much further apart. We're going to bring it back full circle. This is part I don't of the know dream. how, this but is, sure. Listen, this is, this is like the middle of act two. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm really looking forward to act three and seeing how you pull this together. Yeah. I don't believe it even. And I'm in the story. Um, yeah. So I had Thomas Newman, I think would be the biggest and Thomas Newman feels right for this project because what I absolutely love about his work is not to be confused with Randy Newman. Just saying I'm walking out. <laughs> we are done here. She just picked up her handbag and her keys. I'm it's- gone. This is, I can't I, I, even believe what else has Thomas Why Newman would- done. Wh- Tell me, I need to learn. I'm here to learn. I want to learn little women. He did the soundtrack to Little Women. Okay. He did the soundtrack to How to Make an American Quilt. He did the soundtrack to Finding Nemo. He did this, which was such a wonderful choice. Oh my goodness. He adds this air of like melancholy and this um, misleading sense of simplicity because of the way that the, the way that uh, he orchestrates it, um, as opposed to like somebody like Hans Zimmer, who was like full orchestra. And this is, sweepingly epic and you know 
blockbuster from the beginning. Not to say that that's all that Hans Zimmer does, because I absolutely love him, but he Hans Zimmer for me is like the Samuel L. Jackson of movie composers in that he will just do anything. Just bring a project and he's like, yeah, no, I'll do that. <laughs> um, so like he has zero standards. Just to keep working. I'm just going to keep working. It's yeah. fine. And it's fine because it's like a Stephen King thing too where it's like, yeah, and some of these will be great and some of these will be misses, okay? And not his, not his composition. I don't think Hans Zimmer has ever missed, but in terms of the movie that he has chosen to do it for, it will be completely like, why would you do this? So you're a fan of uh, movie soundtracks. Yes. You like that. Yes, absolutely. And like, is that, that's part of like, cause you said you were in the film world when you were in college. Like where did oh, that? Oh, I don't know. I think that came just from me playing an instrument and, um, what'd you play? I played clarinet. I marched clarinet. Whoa. Yeah. Marching you band. You can play while moving. Marching band. Marching band is life. Um, yeah. So I always went, but when I was a kid, so the first time that this really happened and it, it the first two times I should say it happened were, was with Hans Zimmer and James Horner. I do not want to start crying when I talk about James Horner. Last time I flew to California, he died in his plane that same day, and I literally could not turn on the television for a full 24 hours because every time I turned it on, they were talking about it, and I was absolutely devastated. I was, it was, it was horrible. I was so devastated. James Horner, I don't know. I just always assumed I would be able to at some point tell him how much his work means to me. So that was, and what did he do? And like, and then you said he died in a plane? Yeah, in his uh, private plane. Um, Oh, it was horrible. And it was literally... And I hate flying as well. So to 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 have, like, one of your heroes die in a plane crash when that's, like, your greatest fear other than sharks is, like, was... It was just horrific. So when I was a kid, I, I watched, um, of course, Land Before Time. And after I watched Land Before Time, and I was obsessed with it, and then I watched... You want to know something funny? Mm-hmm. When I was in college, there was this girl, and like I think she kind of wanted to make out with me. Like she was really big. Where, where's this going? What's and, happening? No, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and like at one, like we were so sort of the two of us. And like I wasn't really that into it, but mm-hmm. I feel like she was. And then she looked at me. Like maybe we like kissed, and then she like started laughing really hard because she was big. And then she told me that I looked like the dinosaur from the Land Before Time. <laughs> and then I was just like, "This is too weird. I got to get out of here." That's amazing. And yeah. then he was, and then he went to Australia and, and did LSD <laughs> and went into the ocean. These are my highlights. Uh, <laughs> no, so he, I I watched that and I I was it was hypnotic. It was like I was completely obsessed with the music. But at the time, it was like nobody, especially not in my family, like nobody was ever talking about that. So they always thought it was weird when I would want to figure out if there was a way I could hear the music without watching the movie. And then. Um, an American Tale happened and Fievel? Yeah, and and I was like, whoever and I went to my mom, I remember going to my mom and I was like, whoever wrote the music for Fievel Goes West or for American Tale did the music for uh Land Before Time. You knew this without- I, that's what I that's what I told her. And she was like, Okay. And at some point You were an odd kid. Later latching on to like movie movie soundtracks. That's you know not- what? It's not, see, everybody, I feel like that's so reductive to call it movie soundtracks. (laughs) Well, what do you want me to call it? Scores? Yeah. Okay. It's music. Yeah. It's composition. Right. So she eventually, I guess, looked it up and she was like, how did you know that? I was like, I don't don't know. You can tell. Like, you can just tell that's the same guy. So then we're watching, um, what's the first one with Thomas Newman? Yeah. The first one with Thomas Newman that I really picked up on was uh, Little Woman. And then we watched How to Make an American Quilt. And I was like, whoever did this one did that one and she checked and she was like yeah it's thomas newman um 
And yeah, that's kind of where that started. And then, of course, then James Horner did Braveheart. And like, I used to, I would fall asleep to that soundtrack. Like, and if you know the soundtrack, you'd be like, how did you fall asleep to that soundtrack? Um, but did James school, Horner, who, who did Last of the Mohicans? No, Last of the Mohicans was, oh, I know this because I have it on my computer. It's not a big deal. I was listening to no, that soundtrack to random, randomly the other night. Yeah, no, that was a big one. That one stayed with me as well. Um, and then the NFL used it for that commercial, and I was like, good job. Um, and then, of course, I got into Hans Zimmer because it's impossible to not. And he is absolutely brilliant. He just, like I said, he's completely indiscriminate. And and you'll be like, okay, this is now Pirates of the Caribbean 5. <laughs> what, what are you doing, Hans? You have enough money. You have so much good work to do. Um, I, I like, I'll listen to his scores and I'll never have seen the movie. So I've never seen Inception. Never seen it, you guys. I, I didn't understand that movie at all. I was just like, what the fuck was that? I didn't watch it, but I do have the score. Um, and then I think I found somebody actually that way. And he did the score to Lord of War. And I heard the score first. So I went and saw the movie. Um and of course, I'm going to completely blank, and I have him on a playlist right now for a book that I'm, for the book that I'm writing right now. Oh, this is horrible. So I know them too well, and I'll get their names mixed up, and I'll sound like I don't know them. So I'm not going to say. But if you've not heard the soundtrack to Lord of War, very good. You should go. Is that the Nick Cage movie? Yeah, Nick okay. Cage and uh, what's that guy's name? Jared Leto. Okay, so when you uh, zero in on a, a composition or a composer that you really like. Mm -hmm. Like, I know it's like, it gets really tricky to like talk about aesthetics. It's like, you sort of just have to hear the song, but like, what is it that you're responding to? Do you know? Yeah. It's, this is, this is it. This is the aura. It's an emotional. This is the, it's not just a, mm, I guess that that's, the, yeah, that's accurate, I guess. But it feels like it's, this is an accurate representation of the world of the story that I'm going to be writing. Right. So there's you finding like some sort of thematic this resonance. It, this encapsulates this, this is it. This, this, my character, this sounds like my character. That sounds, I'm going to steal that idea. I'm, I got to go find Like after you leave, I'm going to start looking for some, uh, some scores. You know what you should do? You should go to your recycling bin. You should take the books out of it. That's what you should do after <laughs> I leave. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about the book. And then you should beg for forgiveness. <laughs> exactly. While swimming in the ocean. Absolutely. Um, okay. So you figure out your, your, soundtrack for mem right and then i and then i have a first line i have to have a first line because like i said i don't go to a blank page so um i know what the first line is i usually know probably by then and with mem this might be different because i don't think i did but usually i will know the climax um and i'll probably know one more important thing that's going to happen in act one i sort of have these little like posts along the way that i know um before I ever get started. And of course, I don't, I, I think I know the character. I have to think I know the character. Obviously, I probably don't at that point. But, but uh, I, yeah, because it changes as you right. go. I have to, yeah, because they are organically sort of develop in the world that you start writing. So um, I think I know the character. And I will usually have, especially in this case, because this was historical, which isn't normal for me there's research to do for every book but in this case it was literally set somewhere it was literally set at a particular time um so i knew some of the things that i already was excited about her being involved in or being there for um and so i start writing from there and once i usually i will write i'll usually write a first chapter and at that point i will 
go back, I'll look at it because the first chapter will then sort of inform me how this is going to be different from whatever I sort of thought it was going to be. And then I will go back and actually sort of plot out the first act again, still skeletally in terms of what somebody who's an actual plotter would say. But at that point, I know she's going from here to here to here to here. And that's going to be act one. And this is where I, I think act one will end then I'll write out and then I'll actually write act one and I'll stop again. Um, this doesn't feel like a hard stops to me because this is all very fluid at this point to me. But um, from that point, once I have the full act, I, I will again read that. Um, I do a lot of reading aloud to myself or having somebody read it aloud to me. The, 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 it's musical. I have to hear it. Like I have to, the, if the pentameter, right, because word choice and everything for me, it is, it's still very much music. Like, this is the wrong pentameter. This is not the this is not the melody of the way this person speaks or something like that. So uh, particularly if it's first person, um, this isn't the way this person would say that. And it's not that the other way is wrong or somebody wouldn't use that. It's just not what this person would say. Um, it's not the right melody for her. Um, and at that point, after I finished Act One, then it should be very clear all the way through to the actual climax like i should have that very clearly in my mind i want to say mim is completely different from all of this because while i tend to try to draft between like four to six weeks um wait you want to do a first draft in four to six weeks yeah like for a novel length damn for that's fast novel length um that's crazy fast it's 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 my job like it's, I know, it's, but it's how, the only thing i'm doing so how much how much uh, how many words are you getting in a, in a sitting i have usually i will start to take to, i just like i hoard information so i have an excel that will tell you like here's how much i wrote on these different days but um i don't really write that way because then i start paying attention to the word count versus I want to get through this emotional arc or i want to get through this i just i i just write and then i'll usually record what the word count was but i'm not like writing to a word count um but for this one which is shorter as a novella i actually took four months to write it um but there wasn't a lot of revision after that because i do rolling revision like i said and and because it was sort of growing like i didn't know that she would meet her source i didn't know like there were things about this story that i really didn't know until i was writing them so this is very different for me in that sense everything that i tell people about like how i write is probably totally different from him yeah i mean that's i don't know i'm just i'm still astonished by four to six weeks but that's awesome and then how many drafts ultimately you said you were doing rolling I revisions did rolling so i mean i don't know i did one for mem i wrote it in 2011 and then in 2015 i did a revision and then i sold the revision and then we did basically like almost copy edits like from that point so so nothing major after that. nothing major after what, that. what happened in the four years i did between? rewrite I, I was writing other stuff i wasn't uh oh, okay. this is a novella so it wasn't I, I wasn't really querying it i wasn't and at some point i decided oh i'm gonna i'm gonna um submit it because i knew i wanted it to be with a literary press and and i don't you don't need an agent for that you don't need an agent for that i'm not saying you shouldn't have one but um and that that was in 2015 when I did that, and so I had interest from someone, and they we had a long conversation. She was absolutely wonderful. Her name is Constance Renfro. She is in my acknowledgments, um, and we talked a lot about it. I ended up doing a revision based on our conversation and some of the things that were brought up. Um, I didn't. I know that they always everybody always wanted me to see if it could be a book. A novella is not a book, so you're not going to just like stretch a novella into a book. Um, What's well, a kind of book? 
it's not a novel. It's like, not a novel. It's not a novel. I don't mean not a book. I mean, it's not a novel. Yeah. Um, so you're not just going to stretch them. It's not like a matter of, oh, I didn't meet word count, so I guess it's a novella. Um, the arc is completely different. For me, the attention is completely different. Um, and it's an, it's intentionally a novella. It is a, it's a very sort of, if you think about it in terms of a shot, it's a very tight frame around her. And yes, that's impacted by the world that she's in and the scientific, you know, the sci-fi elements of it, the speculative elements of it, but that's not what the story is. The story is her. So that to me is a novella. That's not that's not a novel. Um, so they wanted to see, well, can you make it even up to 50,000 words? And in my mind, I'm like, no, I know that that's not going to happen. And we stopped. It, it ended up again right at 40. And I, But that revision was very, very important. There's like an entire character that didn't exist before that. And I don't even understand how that's possible because I think of them as such an important part of the book. Um, so wait, where's the cutoff? I always ask. I'm always curious about this. 40,000 words is a novel. No, 40,000 words is a novella. But The Great Gatsby... Is a novella. Is it? Yeah, just because y'all like it and called it a classic doesn't mean it's not a novella. <laughs> as soon as people like something, it's like, oh, this novel, okay, but it's a novella. But I mean, I'm just like, I'm thinking of, uh, there are books that They're are like called Animal novels. Farm, which is a novella. Like, you it's guys... It's 27,000 words or something like you that. You guys, just because you like something and you take it seriously, here's the problem is I think that people demean or diminish shorter formats. And so then when they like something, they have to try to like gloss over to be like, it's a short novel. Not really. It's a novella. I, I want to say Greg Gatsby's 47,000 words. I, for me, 50,000 is like the cutoff for short novel. Okay. Anything below, this is me talking, anything below 50,000 words is a novella until you get to like 30 and anything below that is a novelette. Like, let's just be real. Is novelette a thing? Yes, it is. It is. I just made that up on the spot. I, I don't know. <laughs> You're creating new forms right here on the Other People podcast. Yeah. No, that's a real thing. And um, yeah, I knew that it was a novella and that it wasn't going to be something else. And to make it something else would have ne- it would have necessitated a complete change. Something would have had to change. And for a lot of people, that was well. Let's talk more about the science. No, we're not going to. Yeah. Let's stick to the story. We're going to do a Michael Crichton, and we're going to skip straight from, we found this DNA, to here's an egg. (laughs) Jump cut. Jump cut. And that's how you do it. So speaking of jump cut, and speaking of Hans Zimmer, and uh, Thomas Newman, and your love of film, and film scores. You have to say James Horner. And James Horner, RIP. Uh, you, he's everything. And you also spoke of like Aristotelian three act structure as you were plotting and writing your novel. It doesn't always end up being three acts. Sometimes it is four acts, but, but the way that I, in terms of what I think of as my plotting, I'm, I'm usually assuming you're defaulting to like the three act, but that doesn't mean it always But, but a lot of writers, I mean, I, I don't, I'll be honest, like in 500 something episodes, I haven't had a lot of writers talk explicitly about three act. Not that they, they don't think it at yeah. home. Maybe we just didn't get to it, but, uh, you also never know what people are interested in. As a writer, I'm like, I'm trying to say stuff that's like interesting to an audience of, of, of potentially non-writers. So will that sound like anything to them or is that just white noise? I mean, I, I would assume that a lot of writers still are very aware of that just because they don't talk about it. I don't know. Well, I think also people who write literary fiction tend to struggle more with plot than they do with some other elements of storytelling. I think uh, that's only if you're going into it with the in a comparative mindset. I don't try to compare it to, okay, what if I were writing genre fiction? Well, the expectations are completely different there. So the, for me, literary fiction is, um, a focus on character and language. And it doesn't mean that there's no plot. Of course there's a plot, 
that it's a different kind of plot a lot of times. And that's what really people should probably say is it's a different expectation for plot. If it's genre fiction, you're going to expect event-driven, world-driven sort of uh, things to be happening and, and reactions, actions, and reactions, um, where a lot of literary fiction can be interior. That doesn't mean it has to be. There's a lot of, of you know, fiction that's not. But for me, in this story even, and I think that's why, to me, it makes more sense to call it speculative literary, the concept that births her is speculative, but the focus is on her. It's an interior portrait. Like, it's her development, or not necessarily even her development of herself, but of being able to take up space in this world and and verbalize who she is and, and sort of stand in that... Um, and it's nothing that happens after the inciting incident. It's nothing that that happens from the outside. It's see, but there, like I just heard you say, inciting incident. That that right. to me is a film term. You're thinking. Are of, you a writer? Yeah. You don't. You don't. You you don't hear the term inciting incident. I do sometimes, but just more often in a film. No, context. I, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on book Twitter every single day. <laughs> inciting incident is a totally normal. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I like to do screenwriting as well, but it's no, that's a, that's a, that's a story term. Yeah. Inciting incident is a story term. Where okay. does the story start? So I guess my question though, that I'm driving at is that like, as you were writing this, were you seeing a movie version? I'm always seeing it. It's if a I'm cinematic. Not, that's, it's always cinematic to me. Yeah. Yeah. If it's playing in my head and if it's not, then it doesn't make sense. If I can't see, because first of all, reading is giving, is like building a movie in my own head. Anyway, if I'm not seeing it play out, I don't think of it in terms of, oh, is it a good movie? I think of it, that's to me, that's not a good book. Like, I need to be able to translate these words immediately into something that my mind's eye can translate, like, um, can imagine. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess because of my background, I can't say that that's not, you know, that's not just me, but I feel like that's, that's how I choose books that I like anyway, like anybody else's books that I read. I, I can always see them. Um, and if I can't, I'm probably going to DNF it. Like, What does that mean? Do not finish. Do not <laughs> DNF. Uh, TLDR, TL, semicolon, DR. DR, there yeah. you go. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Okay. So, so am I. You gotta, I tweet. You got to figure out how to. He's not a real defensive I, <laughs> like, like, I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> I tweet. Not well, but I try. You know? No, Twitter is my favorite. It's I mean, my favorite too. place online. It's me. I mean, I mean, I guess it's, it's horrible. It's a, it's a horrible trash fire. But yeah. My, <laughs> but I spend most of my day. But there. I spend most of my day there. That's why cell phones make no sense to me. Cause I'm like, if you wanted to find me, you would just go to Twitter. Right. You're always, well, I, now that I know that you better yeah. watch out. I'm always like, I'm gonna, you better watch out. I'm going to, I'm going to slide into your DMs. I'm going to at you. <laughs> okay. Which of those? Are you going to at me or are you going to slide into my DMs? Maybe both. Two very different things. Who knows? But what do yeah, you, cause DMs, I mean, obviously that's like off the record. Right. Substance. Until I screenshot it and put it on the timeline. And put it on the, put it on the timeline. <laughs> yeah. like, whatever. What yeah. did this dude just say, you guys? <laughs> this is the same dude that throws books away, by the way. But at least I don't eat on airplanes. Oh, my God. I've got that going if for me. If you're listening, sir, go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Beg for forgiveness. I mean, I, I just hope, I hope, honestly hope that at least a, a few people listening reconsider if they are Absolutely. airplane. Maybe we've done some good in this world with this episode. I like to believe we have. I feel like we've saved lives today. <laughs> Don't go in the ocean. <laughs> Don't do LSD. Know who Thomas uh, Newman is. He almost did not have that name 
you you paused between Thomas and Newman as though it's not one divine entity <laughs> that rolls off the tongue. Confusing. I'm confusing with Randy. Duh! Yeah. Stop talking. Why would you say that? Bla- Have know. you ever heard Randy Newman? Yeah. How is he getting paid? He's like he's he has jolly. done this. He has done the same soundtrack for every movie <laughs> until they finally nominated him. We're like, fine, fine. We hear you. He's he, the absolute worst. He's the Susan Lucci of. Uh, oh remember her from uh, yeah. All My Children? I feel she like finally she's won. more talented. Uh, but I feel like that if song. If you know Randy Newman, <laughs> I don't apologize. Actually, I'm defending Randy Newman. I think he's a he's a likable Throat chap. Chop him for me, please. <laughs> he uh, wrote that song "I Love L.A.," which I sort of uh, like in a kitschy way. I knew I hated way. him. <laughs> like when they go, I, I love it. it. I love oh that. Oh my god, <laughs> he's. I'm sorry. I don't understand how he gets to exist and breathe the same air as James Horner did. I don't. That makes no sense to me. Well, and that, I know everybody has their different taste. <laughs> some things are objectively bad. Some things are. Obje- Can we all agree on this? Some things are objectively bad, and Randy Newman's music is one of them. It's very simple. On that note, I feel like I should use Randy Newman music in the interstitial after we close this episode. Would I that- will drag you so hard on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe I'll use James Horner. I'll I score just- this episode yes, as a tribute. If you do, okay. So let me give you some suggestions if you're going to do. James Horner, or if you want to do Hans Zimmer and a, and a movement that I actually wrote like almost an entire book to, A Small Measure of Peace, which is again from a movie I will never watch, which is like The Last Samurai or something about, you know, whatever. We're not even going to get into that. It's garbage premise. But anyway, A Small Measure of Peace is a movement by Hans Zimmer from that movie, and it is everything also a horrible movie that he scored that is absolutely beautiful i know we said james horner but i think i'll cry if you use james horner so um is almost anything from pearl harbor do not watch that movie it is trash but um again the score is just absolutely beautiful just absolutely gorgeous i wish i remembered some of the names of the movements from that one but a small measure of peace if anybody's like i don't think I've they're ever called cared. movements <laughs> Not, it's it's vaguely I'm digestive. Like, I'm, I'm starting even, to... I'm not even in the top few anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so over this interview. Bethany, it's been fun to meet you. You're fun to talk to. I, didn't I, don't, know know what to, I don't know what to say to that because I want to stay same or like you too, but I also want to be just honest with your listeners. <laughs> this has been a trial for me. <laughs> well, hey, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Thank you for making the time to come over. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, guys, there she is. That is Bethany C. Morrow. Wasn't she fun? Her debut novel is called Mem. It's available now from the unnamed press. You can find her online at bethanycmorrow.com. Her Twitter handle is at bcmorrow. She's all over social media. She's got Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. You can find her. Once again, the novel is called Mem. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. Go get the Other People app. This program has its own app. It's free. Get the Other People app. It's free. It's a free app. Get the free app. If you want to support this show, the address is patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I think that's it. Did I get all the basics done? Yeah, that's, that's what I have to say at the end of every show. Happy 4th of July. Enjoy yourselves. Be safe. Take care of your pets. I wonder if my dog's going to freak out. (laughs) 